Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I don't like to jump in without context, you know that, so we go to the first verse of this short letter and we discover that the author is Jude. And Jude says he is a servant of Jesus Christ, the, liter- the word literally means slave, and brother of James. Okay, so right out of the gate we know who's writing this letter. This would be James the Apostle. And so, James is the half-brother of Jesus. That means that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, why doesn't he say in the first verse, this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus? I mean, wouldn't you want that kind of resume, you know? Why doesn't he do that? I think it may be because he wants the, the audience to focus on the more important relationship that Jude has with Jesus Christ. And that's a spiritual relationship. So it's not about being of the same blood, it's about being of the same spirit. That is the more important relationship. The name in the Greek is Judas. Any idea why they don't call it Judas? Alright everybody, turn to the book of Judas. Just out of curiosity, I looked it up in the Spanish Bible today, and there it is, Judas. Judas, huh? And then for Titus, it was Tito. I thought that was cute. Tito. Uh, but so there's obviously a stigma with the name Judas. He was the greatest apostate. He betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for whatever reason in the English language, they decided let's just go with the shortened version. So, Judas, or Jude, is writing to the church, and he gives us a purpose statement in verse 3, which I always love it when they include a purpose statement. This is why I'm writing to you. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So here's Jude, he's driving along, he's thinking about a letter he's going to write to the church, he's getting excited about it, he's getting, you know, I'm going to encourage the saints and talk about the common salvation that we have in Jesus, and for whatever reason, God convicts him to write something totally different. And instead, he says, he wrote, he's writing to them so that they may contend for the faith. Now this word contend is epagonizomai, which is intense effort. It's a wrestling. It's a warfare kind of term. It's where we get the word agonize from. So the letter, instead of writing this encouraging letter about the Gospel, he is going to write to them about the reality of the spiritual warfare that we as Christians face. 
there are those who creep in to the church and they disseminate lies and they dishonor God by teaching what is false and they try to divide the body of Christ. This is a reminder to us that the visible church is not off limits for Satan. This is not a spiritual warfare free zone where we can come and not experience any kind of spiritual warfare. That place is heaven. That place is coming to earth someday, but that place is not here yet. And so the bulk of his letter is to warn the church about these spiritual counterfeits, these spiritual terrorists who are going to sneak into the church and they're going to kind of blend in, but they're going to teach heresy. So in verse 4, this is still looking at the context, he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes on to give some Old Testament examples. He says these are like the unbelieving Israelites. That's in verse 5. He says they're like the fallen angels who left their proper dwelling. Maybe a reference to the Nephilim in Genesis, but that's in verse 6. He says they are like the men of Sodom who pursued unnatural desire. So he's bringing out all of these grisly, nasty Old Testament accounts and making a connection with these people who are trying to blend in with other Christians. He says in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he stacks three on top of another three, giving us examples of ungodly and rebellious and destructive figures from the Old Testament that everyone would be familiar with. These are all bad dudes. And so then he goes on to use many vivid descriptions and metaphors about how these men operate and what their nature is like. But then he gives us as believers two mandates. He tells us to reach in and he tells us to reach out. So the reach in, he says in verse 20, but you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So, to fortify themselves against false teaching, they are to build one another up in their community, which means they are to exhort one another, they are to encourage one another, they are to instruct one another. So they are to reach in. They are to build themselves up in the truth. But then he tells them that they also need to reach out because there are people who have been influenced by these false teachings and rather than just completely segregating ourselves from them and deeming all of them as apostates, we want to help those who have been swept up in this kind of heresy. So he says in verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, on Wednesday night, we've been going through this letter, and um, because of the Thanksgiving holiday next week, we were not going to have a Wednesday night Bible study this week, and so the book had to be finished by this week. And I didn't get to the last two verses, so I'm like, I'm just going to preach them in a sermon. But it's also really good news to encourage the believers. But what we... What we saw in there was a very dark and weighty letter. I mean, it was heavy. There's lots of talk about the evil of false teachers and the threat of falling away, and there's danger and there's fear. And so it's no surprise that with all of this kind of talk in this very weighty letter, remember, he started out to write an encouraging letter, and then he gives them gloom and doom. It's no surprise that he's going to end by not us focusing on the false believers, not focusing on ourselves, but he's going to have us focus on the glory of the God that we serve. So rather than us getting all wrapped up in chasing after what Satan is doing in the church, he wants to leave us with a picture of the glory of God. Because so much of the letter is the focus on the apostates. Check this out. So he says in verse 4, for certain people have crept in. And then he goes on. This is, it's a short letter, but listen. He says, those who did not believe. In like manner, these also... These people blaspheme. They walked in the way of Cain. These are hidden reefs. It was about these. These are grumblers, verse 16. And then he switches in verse 17 after talking about these, they, these, they, them. He says, but you, verse 17. They said to you, verse 18. And then he says in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, verse 20, but you, beloved. And so you can see where the focus of the letter is, but rather than them leaving with that focus, he wants them to focus on God. And so we see in verse 24, now to Him. Now to Him. Redirect our focus, O Lord. Help us to see the vision of God so that we do not despair. And so to lift the heads of the saints, He gives them this wonderful doxology to go away with. A doxology. A doxology is to ascribe praise to God. So it's doxa and logia, which doxa means glory and logia means saying. And so it's, it's a praise, it's ascribing greatness to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's a doxology. It is praise. Now that's different than a benediction. I get up at the end of every 
sermon, and I give you a closing benediction. And a benediction is a blessing from God to His people. So I'm not making up the benedictions. I get it right from the Scripture. You'll know this one. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That is a blessing from God to the people. But a doxology is moving in the opposite direction. It's not coming down from God. It's going up to God. And it's adoring Him and it's exalting Him. And so after a very weighty and even frightening letter, this is what Jude concludes with. A doxology. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That must have been like taking a huge burden off of their shoulders. I mean, if you were there Wednesday night, it was dense. We only met for three weeks, but it was weighty. And so then he gets to this last portion, and it's like, oh. Now to him. Who is the him? Jesus? The Father? The Spirit? It's a little vague. If you look through the letter, this is a pronoun that's supposed to point back to a proper noun, and we're not really sure if it's talking about God the Father or Jesus, but if you look through the Scriptures, you can find the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being responsible for keeping believers. And that's what this is about, keeping you. So, it might be talking about Jesus. It might be talking about the Father. Both of them were mentioned. But it's not entirely clear. But what is entirely clear is the good news of this doxology, which is a word of praise to God, but it's absolutely a word of comfort to you. And that is that God keeps His people. God keeps those whom He saves. The good news is that God has a grip on you and the good news is not that you have a grip on God. The religions of the world teach you to practice these rituals and pray these prayers and perform these duties and they can train you to try to get a grip on God, but that's not the Gospel. In fact, that's not, God, that's not good news at all. Your grip is not strong. Have you realized that? Your grip is not strong. If you are anything like me, you could point to your last week and you can find areas where you have just failed God. Remember, sin is not just doing what you shouldn't do. It's not doing what you should do. And I'm finding myself in 
between both of those all the time. So if, if, the, if the good news is that I'm holding on to God, that ends up being not good news at all. There are those who go door to door and they peddle their books and magazines and they are there to train you to strengthen your grip on God. These religious salesmen who, who, who bring this message that you need to hold on and hold on tight because He might not keep you all the way to the end. You might fall off. But the good news is that He holds on to you. Now, look at verse 24. Is that really what this is teaching? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. The cultists, those religious salesmen I spoke about a minute ago, would come to you and say, this is not teaching that God's going to hold on to you and keep you to the end. This just says that He is able to do that. It doesn't say He's going to do that. It just says He's able to do that. And they will tell you, you can't have any assurance. You could fall away tomorrow and God would be done with you. So, what does this mean where it says, now to Him who is able... The word is dunamai. It's where we get the word dynamite. It means power. It means strength. It means ability. And so we know that God is able, but the question is, is He willing? Theological Arminians, those not Armenians, Arminians, believe you can lose your salvation and you can fall away. And so... You don't know what tomorrow's might bring. Tomorrow you might be unbelieving. Today you're believing. So you sort of hop in and out of salvation your entire life. So they and the cults all teach that God is able, but it doesn't say that He's willing. And if that's the case, then this is not a good news verse at all. Because what does it help me if I know that God is able, but He's not willing? So that's the question. Now, I would like to point out that God's ability is often the focal point of these doxologies. These doxologies are a word of praise to God, but they are also rich with theology, and theology, correct theology, is good news to believers because it helps us know what God is like. So let me ask you, if you see some kind of pattern here, in similar doxologies. Romans 16.25 Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Let me ask you, is God willing to strengthen you? It says He's able. Is He willing? If he's not willing, what's the point of this verse? 
or Ephesians 3.20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So I ask you, is God willing to do far more than we ask or think? Or 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able, there's our word again, to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Is God willing to make every grace abound to you? And if He's not, why is this seeming like good news? Why this word of encouragement? Why this word of praise to God that He has the ability to do it, but He's not willing to do it? So clearly, the point of these verses is that God is not only able, but He is very willing He is willing. Now, back to our text. What is it that God is able, and I will add willing, to do? To keep you from stumbling. Now, you read through the New Testament, this word stumbling comes up. It is a reference to sin. James says in chapter 3 of his letter, we all stumble in many ways. He's talking about sinning. What is Jude saying here? That God is able to keep us from sinning? There are Christians who believe that you are supposed to reach a sinless perfection and that you can get to a point of sanctification where you no longer sin. Ha! His point is not that God is able and willing to keep you from sinning. But He is saying He is able and willing to keep you from sinning yourself out of the kingdom. He is able and willing to keep you from falling away from His grace, from abandoning Him and going off into the world again. True believers. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is the doctrine that teaches that all believers in Christ, all true believers in Christ, will persevere. Not because we are keeping a grip on Christ, but because He is keeping His grip on us. That's the good news. That those whom Jesus saves, He keeps, and the evidence of them being kept is that they persevere to the end. So the evidence that we belong to Christ is that we remain with Christ, and we remain with Christ because God is the one that keeps us joined to Christ. I've thought about this many times. If I could fall away, I would have fallen away a hundred times already. Same with you. If you could have fallen away, you would have. Believe me. 
you would have shipwrecked your faith at some point already, and God, if he, okay, I'm done with you. But the fact that you still desire Christ today, the fact that you sin and fall down, and you still get up, and you go to God and be forgiven, and keep on the course, on the path to life, is because He is the one that is keeping you. And that is the evidence that He is keeping you. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. We just sang that. Aren't those wonderful truths? Isn't your, isn't your love for God often cold? Don't you wake up some days and you're just a miserable person to be around? And you're just staggering through your life and feeding the hole in your face and getting dressed and... And there's not a loveliness about you. There's not a heart that's full of faith. Maybe it's just me. But if the good news is that He's holding on to me and that it's not about my performance every morning... It's not about how many times I say praise Jesus every day or how often I read my Bible every day. But it's this calling and it's this keeping and it's this drawing me back to Himself again and again and again. That is what Jude is talking about. And so he writes this letter and it's full of examples of those who fell away. Cain and Balaam and Korah and you've got this judgment and that judgment and then he ends with this wonderful, beautiful picture of God keeping you. Now he starts the letter in a similar fashion so they become like bookends. Look all the way back in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he starts out talking about this. Kept for Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? If you have the ESV, you have a footnote. Uh, it could be translated kept, um, excuse me, kept by Jesus Christ which is also a beautiful picture. Could be translated either way, but whether it's in, whether it's um, for or whether it's by, the point remains the same and it's wonderfully clear. You are being kept. You see this throughout the teachings of Jesus. John, the, John's Gospel is full of this kind of teaching. I'll give you one example John 6.37-39 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the will of God. That all that He gives to the Son, Jesus will keep to raise up on the last day. 
That's his church. Think about it. Will the good shepherd not keep his sheep? Like we saw last week with Jesus and the bridegroom and the whole thing, will the bridegroom not keep his bride? Will the father not keep his children? He's not only able, but he is willing. That means that God is in the process of keeping you today. That means your salvation began on a certain day when you believed, and it wasn't just a work that God did then, it's a work that He is still doing today. That means God is active in your life every day doing a saving work. He's keeping you to the end. So Jude focuses on what God is doing now. And going back to our verse 24, he focuses on what God is going to do in the future. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. You know how many times it took me to circle that in PowerPoint? I had to do that like 12 times. It looks so sloppy. I had to keep a very steady hand. (laughs) That's the best I came up with. Get this. He is keeping us to present us before God as blameless. Blameless. The word is used to talk about how the priests would look over the sacrifice that someone was going to offer and they would look for defects. And the ones without the defects were were worthy to be sacrificed. They were without spot or blemish. Of course, it points to the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, gives that righteousness to a people so that they share in His blamelessness. So this this might sound like heresy, but it's not. This is totally biblical. When when, When Jesus presents you before the throne of His glory you will be just as righteous as Jesus Christ. Just as righteous. That's because the righteousness that He possesses, He gives to His people so that your righteousness is equal to His righteousness. The bridegroom to the bride. So that means you do not have a righteousness that is your own. You are not going to stand before God in your own righteousness. I went to church. I prayed. I read my Bible. You are going to stand in the righteousness of another. What Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. You don't want to stand before God in your own righteousness. 
And so the bridegroom makes his bride white as snow. Some will stand before God as their judge. And, and, and the holiness of God is going to bring everything to light. The holiness of God is going to bring forth every evil deed. All of those things hidden in darkness. All of those things hidden in secret. And people will stand before God and be judged and condemned. And even their good works, even their best day, even the best works that they ever did outside of Jesus Christ will be, as Thomas Brooks once said, nothing but glorious sins. But others will stand before God and you know what those are going to be like? They are going to be blameless. Blameless. Paul celebrates this in his letter to the Ephesian church in the beginning. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before Him. So God's plan from the beginning, from eternity past, was to choose a people and to save a people and to bring them to Him without fault. And so Jesus comes and He redeems a people by being their substitute. By taking their sin upon Himself. By giving His perfect life to them and their account so that there are a people forever and ever who give God glory by being redeemed. This means that you cannot improve upon your salvation. This means that your standing before God, if you are in Christ, does not change. And that you're a little bit more pleasing to God when you read your Bible. And you're a little less pleasing to God when you don't read your Bible. Because your standing before God is based on the work of Jesus Christ. Now, you should read your Bible. You should pray. You should go to church. You should wake up every day and seek to do the will of God. But you fall short, and I fall short, but what doesn't fall short is the perfect righteousness that Jesus has gained and given to us. Somebody say amen. Now, I wonder what kind of response that would give you. And maybe Jude talks about this in verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. You know how they depict heaven as we're all sitting on clouds and strumming harps and just bored out of our skull? It's not going to be like that. Imagine 
Just to use an earthly example, imagine you are guilty of great crimes against humanity. And you were guilty. They got you on videotape. They got you eyewitnesses. I mean, there's no question. You even confess to it. You're guilty and your future is dark and bleak. And you have multiple life sentences and you're going to be in solitary confinement and it's the worst of the worst and you're thinking about this and preparing for this and wondering how you're going to endure such misery. And then a phone call comes in and you discover that you have been pardoned. And not just pardoned, exonerated. Because the very judge himself is going to serve your sentence. And so according to the law, you have been set free. Do you think joy might be a response to that news? Do you think even great joy? I think so. William Barclay says, He can bring us into His presence exultant. Surely the natural way to think of entry into the presence of God is in fear and in shame. But by the work of Jesus Christ and in the grace of God, we know that we can go to God with joy and with all fear banished. Through Jesus Christ, God the stern judge has become known to us as God the loving Father. So instead of standing before the judge, the great and terrible holy God who's going to condemn us, we stand before our life, our love, our greatest treasure, our greatest delight. Now I want you to think about the end of this verse. 24 is really the main verse we're focusing on. 25 will go really quick. I want you to focus on this for a minute because I've been looking at it not just all week, but we've been in Jude for a few weeks at the Bible study. The great joy here is very non-specific. It's very non-specific. I mean, we assume, yes, we're going to be super happy on that day. We're going to have great joy. And I have no doubt that we're going to have great joy. And I will teach that we would have great joy. I just did. But I want to propose that it's not just your joy that this is describing. I want to propose that there is going to be great joy that is emanating from the presence of God because God has a capacity for much greater joy than you do. And there's a possibility that God is looking forward to that reunion more than you are. Consider that for a second. What if God is looking forward to receiving you to Himself in His presence more than you? And the great joy being described here is not just the joy you're going to have for being forgiven, but the great joy that God has in you as His child. What if God is such a lover of your soul 
that He longs for that day. What if God loves you so much and has loved you so long that when you enter into the presence of His holiness, the greatest amount of joy that is expressed comes from Him? Do you think that's possible? Can you even conceive of such an idea? Let me give you a couple of verses that I think would back this up. Isaiah 62.5 For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Does the bridegroom rejoice over the bride? Psalm 116.15 Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Why is that precious? God likes to see people die. He thinks it's fun. No, because that barrier that is between you and God has now been removed. And it's precious in His sight because now you can experience and enjoy His fullness. And you can be in His presence. Zephaniah 3.17 Just so I tell you, there will, sorry, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Or we saw this back in Luke 15. Sinners coming to Jesus. Pharisees rejecting them. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And when Jesus wants to describe the reconciliation between sinners and God, He tells a parable. The prodigal son. Do you remember that one? Prodigal son goes off, squanders his father's resources, comes to a place of surrender when he realizes that he has nothing in his father. He should have stayed with his father. And he returns to his father to become a slave. And what does the father do? The father was looking for him. The father runs to him. Who's got more joy in that account? The son was happy to be received, but the emphasis in the passage is on the joy of the father. He's like, let's throw a party. Get the calf and get the bounce house and get the mariachi band. Let's go. The father is supposed to represent So, great joy. And then he says in verse 25, I'm not going to spend much time here, but just to make a few notes. He says, To the only God, our Savior, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, just because this is a doxology does not mean that there's no theology here. And what Jude does here is give a very clear description of the deity of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Notice that God is called the Savior. Notice that Jesus is called the Lord. And if you've read through the New Testament, you realize that both of those are interchangeable between God and between Christ. In fact, the clearest place you can see this is in Titus. Titus 1.3, God our Savior. Titus 1.4, Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus 2.10, God our Savior. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 3.4, God our Savior. Titus 3.6, Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, I don't know what Unitarians do with this. I don't know what Jehovah's Witnesses do with this. Uh, But Isaiah says there's only one Savior. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is only one Lord. So you either have lots of contradictions or somehow the Son and the Father are the same God. The standard that God requires is also the standard that God accomplishes. He's Lord in that He requires it, and yet He's also Savior in that He accomplishes it. Notice that. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Glory. John Piper defines glory as all-satisfying beauty and greatness. I like that. Majesty. Signifies prominence, importance, and preeminence. Dominion. Is about God's sovereignty and His ownership of everything. Authority means there is none higher. There's no one competing for His office. There's no one that can. How long is God all these things? Before all time and now and forever. That was supposed to highlight that, not to cross it out. (laughs) How long is God all these things? You know, now and forever. Just now and forever. (laughs) Just always. The glory belongs to Him before time began. It is His in this present age, and it will be His in the forever future. So, does this sound like the kind of God that you can trust? Does this sound like good news to weary travelers? The good news of Jesus Christ is not only that God will receive you, but that He will keep you to the end. And He will present you blameless before His throne that you might know Him and love Him and enjoy Him forever and ever. Let us pray.
our Heavenly Father, for those of us who could never keep our hold through life's fearful path, because our love is often cold, You must hold us fast. We thank You, Lord, that Your grip is on us and not our feeble grip needed to maintain our hold on You. I pray this would be good news to Your church. I pray that this would bring an encouragement to us this week as we go through life with its challenges, with all the twists and turns and peaks and valleys of life, that we would remember that You are holding on to us and that You are able and that You are willing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.